ourselves and our identity as a nation, or, or liberty, as we sometimes refer to it, is enshrined as an inalienable right in our own declaration of independence. It's been indeed a rallying point throughout our own nation's history. So we think of Patrick Henry's famous line, right, as he's trying to raise a militia for the Revolutionary War. He said, what, give me liberty, give me freedom, give me liberty or give me death. We think of Abraham Lincoln, who characterized the Civil War as the new birth of freedom. Roosevelt, during World War II, referred to that war characterizing the four freedoms that we fought for. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. What was the Cold War but the defense of the free world? Are we talking about free markets, free trade, free exercise of ideas? And because as we're reminded at every sporting event, what are we? We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. All right, so this idea of freedom, it's really branded upon our American psyche. But but what does that buzzword even mean? mean, We we use a lot freedom, but what what does freedom even mean? Because I think for many, it's come down to the, the right to do what I want, when I want, right, with whom I want. And so Justice Anthony, uh, rather Anthony Kennedy, writing the majority opinion in the Burgerfell versus Hodges decision, which legalized gay marriage across the nation, he couched that majority opinion in what language? In the language of freedom. To quote him, freedom of expression, of intimacy, spirituality, regardless of sexual orientation, that's a right for all. Couched in that notion of freedom. But is that how we're to think about freedom? Is freedom fundamentally about about me, about, about my rights, about my speech, about whatever it might be, fill in the blank? Is that the kind of freedom that the Bible would call us to? Is that the way we as Christians should think about freedom? Well, to help us think through some of these questions, I want us to turn this morning back in our Bibles to the book of Galatians, to the book of Galatians. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seat backs, you can find it on page 974, page 974, because in our verses, we're going to see Paul talks a whole lot about freedom, but not always in ways that are going to be familiar to us. So if you're just joining us, Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to to a group of churches that he planted in what we now think of as modern-day Turkey. But now these churches were overrun by false teachers. And we're not talking individuals with just minor theological quibbles with Paul, but individuals who indeed advocated an entirely different religion. And for them, central to our right standing with God is one's reliance upon the law, really the Mosaic law. So they were teaching effectively that Jesus doesn't secure our good favor with God. It's Jesus plus circumcision or plus Sabbath observance, plus the law. Moses, in other words, must complete what Jesus had left incomplete. That's the message they're preaching. And so Paul responds with the book of Galatians. And the basic argument of the whole book is that the good news of the gospel is not what God requires of us, but what Christ accomplished for us. That's the message of the book right there. And everything sort of 
comes to a head at the thesis there in, in Galatians 2, verse 16. We know, Paul says, that a person is not justified. In other words, he's not declared right before God by works of the law, circumcision, etc., but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then everything he writes in 3.1 through 4.11, really the theological heart of the book supports that claim. So remember, he says to them, hey, listen, you experienced this. Abraham believed this. The law and the prophets, they teach this. The Mosaic law reinforces this. Christ's death and resurrection accomplished this. And last week, he said, true disciples bear witness to this. Witness to this message of justification, right standing before God by faith alone. And so with these sort of theological pillars firmly planted now, Paul turns Right from the essence of the gospel to the various effects of the gospel. We saw that first imperative back in 4.11. And if you grab that sermon card that Stephen highlighted uh, this morning, you see Paul just continues to work through some of these effects of the gospel. Right, we thought about disciples. We're thinking about freedom, about the fruit that the Spirit works in the believers and effect of the gospel. Affection for one another, persecution, etc. So what does the Bible then have to teach us this morning about true freedom? What does that have to teach you, if you're a Christian, about the kind of freedom that, that God has actually called you to? All right, we pick up Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, we're going to stop right there. Now, Paul's tone is changed, and there's a part of us that thinks, now wait, we've reverted back to some of those more obscure arguments in the Old Testament that really characterize chapter 3. But though that's the case, his message actually is no less explosive. And he get, he's going to get at this message through the various contrasts that really mark this section. So you've got two different sons, Ishmael and Isaac, from two different mothers, Hagar and Sarah, under two different circumstances, right? the flesh and the promise, resulting in really two different destinies, slavery and freedom, which represent two different covenants, Mount Sinai and the new covenant, pictured in two different cities, right? the present Jerusalem and the heavenly one. And he's setting up these contrasts to really drive home what I want to serve as our first, uh, as our first point this morning, 
first point I want us to see is that religion enslaves us. That's what Paul's helping us to see in in 21 through 31. Religion, we're going to talk about what do we mean by that, but religion enslaves us. Now, that's not what we naturally think. Religion, of course, that's that's how we impress God. By keeping these ceremonies, by honoring these observances, by watching our behavior. Right? This is how we prove our devotion to God. Because all of us naturally, instinctively assume that our good standing with God is secured by our obedience. Or maybe if we're, we're more secularists, perhaps we take pride in our own superior intellectual achievements. Right? Those things are how we differentiate ourselves. Those things are, in fact, how we convince ourselves right, that all is going to be well in the end. And this is how clearly the Jews were thinking. They viewed the Mosaic Law as the pathway to liberation and to freedom. And so they compel these Galatians to what? To live, verse 21, to live under the law. Under the law. Which is just another reminder to us that one of the primary questions in the book is, do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? That's another way just to, to get at the, what Paul's addressing. Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? To which Paul says, no, wait, really? You think, Galatians, you heard me preach to you. You think the way to freedom is to go back to Judaism? To shackle yourselves under the law? Do you not know what the law says? And then he launches into this example of Hagar and of Sarah. And if you're unfamiliar with that Old Testament story, early in the Old Testament, God promises to Abraham and to his wife Sarah, God promises them a son. But days turn into months, which turn into years. And in that baby room that they had put together, the dust gathers, the paint fades, and then begins to crack, much like the withered lines across Sarah's aging face. And it's in those moments where our faith is truly tested, when God seems to have forgotten us, when God's not pulling through for us. We know where to wait. We know the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Yet every fiber in our body is crying out that we've got to do something. We've got to do something. And so they do. Impatient. Sarah suggests to Abraham that he have a son through her slave, Hagar. And they do. And they name that child Ishmael. And that's the traditional father of the Arab peoples. And the brokenness and the hostilities within that family that spilled out, continue unto this day. Which is just another necessary, but at times painful reminder to us, right, that God's watch always keeps the best time. Always keeps the best time. If it seems slow, it's not without reason. We get into trouble when we try to advance His clock. When we try to speed it up. Right? We get impatient. We cease to trust Him. I wonder if there are aspects of your own life this morning where you're saying, God, you know how badly I want this, and your word doesn't say this is a wrong thing to desire, but you're not providing it. And I'm tired of waiting, and so I'm going after it myself. Do you remember what happened to Saul? 
Remember, Samuel told him to wait and not to perform the sacrifices, and we were preaching through for Samuel. But Saul, what does he do? He gets impatient. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He performs the sacrifices, and the consequences are devastating. He loses his family. He loses his kingdom. He loses everything. All because he became impatient with God. So I wonder about you. Maybe in a dating relationship or a situation at work. Maybe one in your marriage. Are you tempted to distrust God this morning and to take matters into your own hands? You know, so often faith in God requires us to wait upon God. That's not what Sarah and Abraham do. Yeah, they should have, because God is always faithful. Years later, she would miraculously conceive, as God had promised, and they would name that son Isaac. Right, but we read earlier, Shelby, actually Shelby read to us from Genesis 21, we, we read how the tensions between the mothers and between the sons, how it builds into the point where Ishmael is sent away. And uh, Isaac would become the father to the nation of Israel. And so it's likely these Jews were saying to these Galatian Gentiles that the only legitimate children of God are the children of Isaac. Those are the only legitimate children of God. And since you Galatians are Gentiles like Ishmael, you need to be circumcised and obey the law in order to become legitimate sons. But the astonishing thing is how these Jewish teachers, or at least it would have been astonishing for these Jewish teachers, because Paul turns all those beloved assumptions upside down. He flips all their assumptions upside down. He's saying, just as Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God's promise, just as they worked human effort and ingenuity to have and gain a son, namely Ishmael, so too these Jews putting you under the law are working for you to gain a right standing before God. So by comparing verse 25, the present Jerusalem, Judaism, to Hagar and Mount Sinai, Paul is saying to these false Jewish teachers, listen, you may be Abraham's descendants by natural birth, but not by spiritual birth. Not by spiritual birth. Spiritually, Paul's saying, you're of the line of Ishmael. Spiritually, you're illegitimate sons. And for people who felt not just safe, but inviolably safe, and, and not only that, but privileged to have Abraham as their natural father, to say that they are spiritual descendants of Ishmael, that'd be infuriating. That would be maddening for them. But Paul's right in what he's doing. Which is just a good warning to us, you know, just because... Maybe you were born to religious parents, or you have deeply religious family members, or you have some religious connection in your own life. That doesn't mean you're spiritually covered this morning. The Jews felt safe because they could claim Abraham and claim the law. But you remember what John the Baptist says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? They took mistaken comfort in their family identity, in their societal connections. I just wonder, what might you claim? 
mistakenly and assume that you and God are covered and good. Because the glorious truth of the gospel is that it can make anyone a child of God. Anyone a child of God. And yet, it's so often for those who presume they're good, either due to their religious accomplishments or their moral achievements, it's often those who make those assumptions that find themselves outside of God's family. Remember the elder brother and the prodigal son in that parable. The reality is we we can't pass on Christianity like we pass on last names. It's not something we can write into a will and pass on to our heirs like an inheritance. Two true children of God, they're not physical. True children of God are spiritual. And that's what Paul's getting at with the quote in verse 27. He's quoting from Isaiah 54. And in Isaiah, Israel is compared to a barren woman who has lost her children due to exile. But Isaiah prophesies of a time and of a day when God will show compassion and when God will restore his children to Jerusalem. And the Jews were waiting for the fulfillment of that day, and they still are. And yet Paul sees this fulfillment in the promise of the gospel held out to us in Jesus Christ. For his people's return from exile is not witnessed finally physically, but spiritually, Paul says, as Gentile believers from across the globe are gathered around a greater Jerusalem, a heavenly one built on greater promises. Just think of the book of Hebrews. Right? Verse 27, the children of the desolate one are thus seen to be more than those of the one who has a husband. He's saying that the true Israel of God, the spiritual people of God, those united to Abraham by faith in Christ, they are the ones who are the fulfillment of these promises. Which is just a good reminder to us that the people of God don't belong to any one nation state. You heard a little bit of that, I think, in the inauguration on Friday. People sometimes talk a little bit like the people of God belong to one nation state. We love our country. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. You know, that's a favorite verse of many American politicians and of of evangelicals, American evangelicals. And it's witnessed by the fact that when Mike Pence, when he took his oath, he had his hand actually over that verse. The Bible was open to that verse. And yet, to be clear, that verse in 2 Chronicles is no more referring to America than it is to Angola. God didn't make a covenant with America. There's not a nation state that uniquely claimed to be, quote-unquote, my people. I think to pray verses like this, I think it misunderstands the text. But I think even more than that, we risk making an idol out of our own nation. We risk turning Mount Rushmore into our own golden calf. Friends, we don't want to do that. 
We don't want to do that. I love our country. I want God to heal our land. But that happens when we share Jesus and those who are not naturally God's people from any nation become God's people through hearing the gospel. That's the kind of healing the Bible presents. That's the kind of hope as Christians that we have. A hope that extends well beyond our own nation and borders. But that's the very kind of work that the law is powerless to provide. The law demands obedience, but the law grants no power to obey. And so we exhaust ourselves on that treadmill of religious guilt and insecurity, ever trying to run harder and farther and faster. Ishmael is the nature, the religion rather, of nature. It's the religion of of man's contribution, where God and salvation are for those who are good. Paul says that religion enslaves. It enslaves us. Whereas Isaac is the religion of grace. It's not man's contribution. It's about God's intervention. It's not for those who are good. It's for those who know they are not good. Paul says to understand that. You've got to understand that. To understand that you can't keep the law. To understand that you can step off that treadmill of guilt and insecurity and shame because he has kept the law for you. To understand that, that we don't have to keep the law because one has perfectly kept it for us, that is the beginning of understanding what it truly means to be free. And that brings us to our second point. If religion enslaves us, secondly, Christ emancipates us. Christ emancipates us. We're going to pick up chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Which think of Paul, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. What a remarkable thing for him to say. That it counts for nothing. The definitive mark at what it meant to be a member of the people of God counts for nothing. It's not physical. It is the spiritual circumcision as Shelby was praying. Counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. All right. Paul's building. He's a little hot in these verses. Getting a little, getting a little eager. And in these verses... We're reminded, you know, Galatians is often referred to as like the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. 
and Christian freedom. And we understand from verses like this. And, and verse 5-1 is sort of your, your headline verse right there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then everything else in 2-12 to is going to explain what he means by that statement. In other words, Christ accomplished what religion was powerless to achieve. Genuine freedom. True liberation. All right, well, freedom from what? Is he talking political freedom? Is he talking some kind of psychological therapeutic freedom where we learn how to sort of embrace ourselves? No, he's saying Christ has set you free from the guilt of sin. He's freed us from the guilt of sin. You know, maybe you know what it's like to bear the burden when you've done something that's wrong and to live with the guilt, the inability perhaps to make amends, to make things right. And yet he's saying Christ has borne the guilt of your sin. You don't have to bear that. You are free, genuinely free. There is, as we sang just a few minutes ago, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He paid the penalty. There's nothing left for you to bear. That burden of guilt, leave it at his feet. He can bear that for you. You're freed from the guilt of sin. But not just that. He's also saying, listen, you're free not from just the guilt of sin, but from the bondage of sin. You're free from the bondage of sin. Because if we're in Christ, we're no longer slaves to our lusts and to our passions. Paul's going to say later in Galatians five twenty four, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? We can now genuinely walk in newness of life. We're no longer defined by those disordered desires, right? Our identity is in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we've perfectly arrived. You know, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. And yet, while it freed slaves, they still lived in a white world with forces conspiring against them. In many ways, forces that still remain to this day. And in a similar way, so it is with the Christian and indwelling sin. Are we freed finally from the bondage of sin? Yes. But the lingering effects of sin do still remain. And that decisive freedom, that full and final break from its bondage, that we do wait for. He says we do wait for it. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, verse 5. We don't work for it. We wait for it. Which is why Paul says, 5.1, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, which is a book written by John Bunyan, it's an allegory of the Christian life. Um, the main character, Christian, is, is groaning and he's sighing under the heavy burden of his pack, of the load upon his back. And it's a picture of sin. And he comes across a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And he sees Christian suffering under the burden of his load. And he says to him, hey, I know how you can be free of that. There's a village just up the hill. It's called the village of morality. And there's a man there named Mr. Legality. And if he's not there, just a house or two down is a man named Mr. Civility. Go there. They can teach you how to be freed from your load. And Christian knows that's not the way the evangelist told him to go, but He's burdened by his pack. And so he goes and he starts to make his way up the hill. But the further he climbs, the steeper it gets. And he can never quite make it to the village of morality. 
legality and Mr. Civility, he never meets. He's so burdened and overwhelmed by his sin, he's undone. Right, the yoke is too great. And that's what religion is. It is a yoke upon our shoulders, a burden upon our backs. But what does Jesus say? What does he say? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, friend, if you are tired, if you are tired of your sin, if you are tired of of those vain attempts to bear the burden of that sin for yourself, tired of that repeated cycle of stumbling and then gathering yourself together only to stumble again and live in shame, be free of that burden. Be free of that burden. Lay that burden upon Jesus' shoulders. That's why he came. Jesus didn't come to sit on the sidelines and watch you suffer as you try to bear that pack. And every time you stumble, bark at you and say, try harder. Do it again. Go back to the law. That's not why Jesus came. He came arms outstretched to bear our sinful loads for us. There on the cross, he stood firm. He stood firm so that all those who would repent of their sins and and trust in him could lay their packs on his shoulders and know that his shoulders were the only shoulders that could ever bear that load. Friend, if you haven't done that, I pray you would. Be free of the burden of your sin. But if you go back to the law, if you keep looking for that village of immorality and Mr. Legality and Mr. Civility, if you go there, if, he says in verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Paul says Christ is no advantage to you. He is no advantage to you. Paul prohibits circumcision here not as a health matter, not merely as a cultural matter. He prohibits it for these Gentile Christians as a theological matter. In their particular circumstance, it is a theological matter. Because circumcision For them, the way they understood it according to the law, circumcision was the religion of human achievement, of what man must do by his own good works. Whereas Christ stands for the religion of divine achievement, right? What God has done through Christ to pay the penalty for all the sins we had done, to give us those good works that we could not live. So to rely on circumcision for salvation means they can't rely on Christ for the same. He's of no advantage to them if they rely on circumcision. But that's hard for us. That's hard for us because we want to think we can contribute something. We want to think we make a difference. But the cross is offensive, Paul says in verse 11. It's offensive because it says, you know what? You can't make a difference. You can't make a difference. Instead, every attempt that we muster in order to save ourselves, the cross thunders down from heaven, worthless, vain, futile. You know, if it's a sports game, every time God hands us the football, we fumble it. Every time he passes us the basketball, we airball it. Every time we get up to the plate, we strike out. We have nothing to contribute, spiritually speaking. And that's offensive because we want a gospel that commends us for our contributions. We want a gospel that makes us feel good about what we can bring and offer. And that's the appeal of religion. But Paul says to go under the knife, to pursue that, verse 4, means they've actually cut themselves off from Christ and fallen away from grace. Now, is Paul saying there in verse 4 that Christians can lose their salvation? 
No, he's simply saying what will happen to them if they place that pack back upon their backs. So I understand verses like this are warnings. And these warnings serve as the means by which God's people persevere in the faith. They're the reminder to stay on the narrow path that leads to life. For those who fall away, well, they just reveal they've never genuinely and truly been saved. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We can't finally lose our salvation by our behavior any more than we earned it by our behavior. So in verses 7 to 12, Paul, he encourages them, listen, press on, press on. And his image of of one who hindered them uh, just reminded me, back in 2003, Tour de France, Lance Armstrong, it's a really tight race. I think it's stage 15. We're in the mountains, and they're climbing, and he's beginning to lay down the hammer. He's beginning to take the lead. And as he comes around a corner, there's a fan who's got a hat or something. And as he's cheering, he grabs the handlebar and takes Lance down. He stumbles, he goes down, bloody, messed up pedal, and his competitors keep pressing on. And in interviews afterwards, he said, right there, I thought my tour, I thought it was all done. I thought it was all over. And yet he dug deep, he got back on his bike, he steadily worked his way back up to the leaders, he managed to drop them all one by one and finish the race. He won that year's tour. That was sort of the decisive moment right there. And Paul's saying, listen, these teachers have have hindered, they've cut in on you, kind of like that fan did, although they're doing it intentionally. And that happens to us in the Christian life. We, We get cut in on. You know, in that moment, we have a choice to make. We can either give up or we can press on, right? Paul's saying the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not enough just that we start well. We need to finish well. We need to end well. And Paul's confidence is that they will, verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Well, how does he have that confidence? Well, it's because the Lord has promised to finish the good work he's begun in them. Philippians 1.6. Our confidence is not finally in ourselves, but it's in the one who has summoned us to himself. That's where our confidence lies. But for those who are cutting in, Paul doesn't mince any words. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So don't miss what he's saying. He's saying... If they think circumcision is such a help in your salvation, why not just go all the way? Cut it all off. That's what Paul's saying. He's being rather direct. He's being rather crass. But that's, as a pastor, what he felt like in that moment. He had to wake them up to their spiritual stupor. He's like, listen, just they might as well let the knife slip while they're at it. It's of no use. Christ is no advantage if you accept circumcision. So he says to them, right, cast out the slave woman, 430. He refers to the little leaven that leavens the whole lump. And that image is used in 1 Corinthians 5 of discipline. The image is, listen, don't give these false teachers the mic. Show them the door. Don't let them teach this stuff to you. Christ is of no advantage to you if you listen to them. 
you know, as a church, we've got to be willing to, to both recognize and reject false gospels. Any church unwilling to recognize and to call out false gospels forfeits the right to bear witness to the gospel. Which is why at times you'll hear me clarify what Roman Catholicism teaches about how you can be made right with God and what the Bible teaches about how you can be made right with God. It's why last week I called out Paula White in the message. It's not because I like throwing stones, but rather because God's not a moral relativist. There aren't many paths to God. There is one path. The difference between the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life is finally difference between heaven or hell. And any pastor worth his salt, he's going to tell you that leads to destruction and that leads to life. And it's what Paul must do with them. It's what your elders must do with you as they teach you the word. Religion enslaves us. Christ emancipates us. Right, but toward what end? Why? Our final three verses. Picking up chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here we see the purpose of Christian freedom. Third point, true freedom serves others. Very clear, very simple. Point three, true freedom serves others. Now verse 13 really just restates what he had already said in chapter five, verse one. But notice he qualifies it. He says you've been set free, but then he says only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Right, so lest we be tempted to abuse our freedom, Christian freedom is not the freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. It's not to do what I please in the service of self, but to do as I ought in the service of others. Recognize, he's not merely saying, listen, it's good that you're helpful to one another. Literally, that word serve, he's saying become slaves of one another. In the same way that you are a slave to Christ, a bondservant of Christ, become slaves to one another. It's a startling image because he's been saying, you're free, you're free, you're free. And then he flips and says, now be a slave to one another. Christ has freed us to become slaves to one another. That's really the sum teaching of 421 to 515. Usually, I give you that summary, ver- summary sort of sentence in the beginning, but this is to keep you on your toes. This is to make sure you're still listening. The summary sentence, you want to know what it is? Of 421 to 515, as best I can discern, Christ has freed us to become slaves to one another. We've been saved to serve others. And he supports that, verse 14, with the quote from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's right here where our cultural notions of freedom collide headlong with the biblical notion of freedom. For lots of people claim to be free, but they're really just slaves to their own selfish appetites. And talk of freedom is really just a guise to indulge personal desires. 
But biblical freedom is not saying yes to every whim and passion. Biblical freedom is not casting off all restraints and embracing every desire. We're truly free when we're no longer under the domain of our desires. And thus we are freed to serve others. This is what Martin Luther captured so well when he wrote on Christian liberty, where Galatians was so powerful for him coming out of Catholicism. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So don't think about biblical freedom as a form of sort of theological privatism. Like, I can believe what I want and don't you dare question me about my beliefs. It's not a kind of spiritual narcissism where you can say, listen, I'm free to be true to myself and don't you tell me how I'm supposed to live. It's not a theological privatism. It's not this sort of spiritual narcissism. It is a communal consideration of one another. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you have been set free in Christ, genuinely and eternally free, it is so that you are a slave to others. That's why you've been set free. Well, to whom? To what others? To like relatives in another town, to my neighbor down the street, to a coworker, to the stranger I meet on the square? Whom is Paul talking about? He says to one another, end of verse 13, to one another. He's referring primarily to those relationships within the church body, to one another. That will include others by extension, but it's primarily this servanthood is lived out within the church family. So I wonder if, if you're here this morning. Obviously, you're here this morning. You're listening. For all of you here this morning, how are you evidencing your freedom by becoming a slave to others in this room? How are you doing that? Recognize if you haven't committed to a church body, that's the first place to start. If you don't have a church body, you don't have a one another. The Bible assumes you have one another. If you don't have one another, that should bother you. You should commit to a church body. First thing to do. Okay, but for members of UBC, what does that look like for you? What does it look like for you? How do you use your freedom to become a slave to other members of the body? Do you use that membership directory to pray for members of the body. That is an easy and an immensely powerful way that you can serve them. It's set up so you can pray through the directory every month. How do you seek to encourage fellow members? You know, one of the things that marked the New Testament church was its gracious hospitality. Are you opening your home? Not just for people like you, but are you opening your home for especially those members unlike you? Because recognize that displays the gospel, not when our relationships are centered around shared interest, but only in Christ, right? That commends Christianity. That is part of our hospitality, a common love we have in Christ. Are you seeking to do spiritual good intentionally to others, as we thought about discipling last week? You know, maybe you feel like, ah, this is all great, but my schedule just doesn't really allow that. You know, if that's you, and if in the back of your mind, that's kind of what's whispering there, Maybe part of what you need to do in 2017 is readdress your schedule. Readdress your schedule. For schedules present pressures. No doubt about that. Father of four, I totally get it. 
But if there's no time in your schedule to have people over to do intentional spiritual good to them, perhaps the fault is not with Scripture's unreasonable commitments, but with your schedule's unbiblical demands. I'll say it one more time. Perhaps the fault is not with Scripture's unreasonable commands, but your schedule's unbiblical demands. You know, that's something I say. That's something Aaron and I have had to talk about just the last few weeks. Like we feel like our schedule is defined by our activities, particularly kids' activities. You've got four of them. They've got dance. They've got swimming. They've got youth group. They've got orchestra. They've got choir. A whole host of things consume our evenings, and we feel like our ability to do hospitality, to meet with others in evangelism, all that's getting squeezed out. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, Do you think your children are going to be more helped by going two seconds faster in the 50 free or by watching you model the Christian life to others in your own home? Just ask yourself, are the most passionate conversations your children see you have, are they with the refs after a bad call on a Saturday morning? Or are they with a non-Christian neighbor that you have an opportunity to share the gospel? Husbands, you know, what about you? How are you seeking to serve? How, dare I say, are you seeking to become a slave to your wife? Do you even have a category of laying down your life for her? Jesus' own leadership was servant leadership. And that didn't undermine his authority. That actually undergirded his authority. Now we think of Martin Luther, right? The polemic. But he had the heart of a husband and a pastor. And I love what he says in this point. He says the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. And since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. Right? So if you're a husband, in what ways does your service to her reflect how she is your nearest neighbor and your deepest love? You know, our schedules, just stepping back, they all reflect our priorities. Again, what does yours say about your priorities? Does it build in time to serve others? And that's just another useful reminder, even as we step further back. This is why it's helpful to geographically integrate your life, right? So that you're not driving 25 or 30 minutes every time you want to have someone over, have someone over to your your house. Live as best you can in close proximity to work and church and schools. It's going to help you serve one another and live this out well. And friends, we've got to wrap up. All right, so listen, we talk about freedom. We love the word freedom. Right, we cried out with Mel Gibson, right? We know it. We love it. We genuinely want to be free, but religion, Paul's saying religion isn't the way. Religion simply places us on that treadmill where we run harder and faster, but the belt goes faster and climbs steeper and it takes us nowhere. That is no good. Religion enslaves. Christ sets us free. He emancipates us. Truly free. Free from the guilt of sin. Free from the bondage of sin. Free to say no to self. So that you can say yes to others. That is Christian freedom. That is genuine freedom. The ability to say no to self. So you can say yes to others. But is that a picture of you? Is that how you exercise your Christian freedom? 
Are you even free? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray. And we are so grateful that the gospel invites every man. That we are all equal there at the foot of the cross. All equally needy. And all equally able to receive the gift of salvation. God, we pray that we would know the freedom of being freed from our sins, delivered from the guilt and bondage, so that we can love others. God, we pray that would increasingly mark us out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.